Welcome in, everyone. Just another sports podcast. No Colin McGuire this week. Greg Swatek and Josh Smith here with you. And we have a very special guest, Josh, and we've been really lucky with this so far. Yeah, I'm, mean, thr- I'm thrilled to have uh, have this guy on here. So. Uh, yeah, we had Jason Lockenpour on, who, who was great, uh, leading NFL insider. We had uh, Washington Post columnist uh, Barry Verluga on, one of the best sports writers in the country. And we're very pleased this week to welcome another one uh, who, could, who could boast of that, of that very same uh, title. Uh, he is uh, Jeff Perlman, a best-selling author, former uh, Sports Illustrated staffer. Uh, the book is Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. How are you today, Jeff? You know what's funny? Everybody in these intros talks about how great I am and how <laughs> famous I am and you're this best-selling author. And yet, I'm in a coffee shop and I can't even get skim milk and nobody knows who the hell I am. That's great. I feel like it's good to appear in podcasts and radio to build the ego. So how Otherwise, should, I'm nobody. So how should we introduce you, Jeff? I mean, we we got we got to we got to talk you up a little bit, don't we? Uh, I would be like if it were my wife interviewing me or even my kids, they'd be like some schlub who's not a very good dresser, <laughs> Jeff Perlman. We welcome you to the podcast. Sitting in a coffee shop waiting for uh, can't even get skim milk. This guy lives. So. You live in coffee shops. You write most of your books in coffee shops. No, I am literally. I just exited. A coffee shop called J.C. Beans in Dana Point, California. Yep. That's what I figured, yeah. All right, yeah. Jeff. So this book came about because you were fascinated with the United States Football League as a kid. You wrote a 40-page essay in high school, I believe, and you got a B-plus on the paper. First of all, was mm-hmm. a B-plus an appropriate grade for that essay? And, and, and how long was your desire to tell this story burning inside of you before you actually got a chance to do it? Right. So first of all, the one thing I left out in my book about that essay is – I don't know what I was thinking. The whole thing was one paragraph. It was 40 pages without paragraph breaks. I don't know uh. why. So I probably deserved less than a B plus because it was an English class. Um, I wanted to write this book forever. I mean, it's been 10 years of me thinking about the USFL and pitching the USFL and begging someone for a USFL book deal. And I just couldn't get it. You know, I could not get anyone to let me write this book. Um, and finally, four years ago, I got a book deal for a book about Brett Favre called Gunslinger. And I had a couple of people bidding on it. So I asked uh, Susan Canavan from Haunt and Mifflin, who's become a good friend, if she would pay me less money to do, a, uh, to do Favre and also give me a little money to do USFL. And uh, she did. And I think to their delight, Donald Trump, I mean, I don't think to their delight Donald Trump became president, <laughs> but Donald Trump took a book about a league that nobody gave a crap about. And kind of gave it some relevance. Did you put paragraph breaks in your draft in your, in your manuscript to the to the publisher? Actually, it's very interesting. If you read the book, I don't know if you've seen the book. It's all one paragraph, so it's 120,000 words. Some habits never change, Jeff. Some right. habits never change. All right. Well, an interesting yeah. an interesting thing that you learned very early on in this book is that there is another USFL book called The One Dollar League, and it was written in 1987 by Jim Byrne. So tell me, mm-hmm. how is your USFL book different than Jim Byrne's from all those years ago? All right. So actually, there are three USFL books, three real – there have been small books written here and there, but three major, I would say, USFL books. The Jim Byrne book I knew about forever. In fact, right. I read that when it came out when I was a kid. And it's funny because it's a very uh, wonky book, for lack of a better word. Like, it's very owner-centric and about the meetings and blah, blah, blah. And, right. and a lot of people, if you read reviews, hate that book. And I love that book. Like, love, love that book. It, it was a really important book in my childhood and my development as a reader. Um, Jim Byrne died last year, and uh, to me, that book is really important. Then... There's a book about um, there's a book that came out last year 
Hmm. Not kidding. By a guy named Paul Reitz. When I saw someone else was writing a USML book, I can say this because it's a podcast. My first thought was, fuck. But is it okay if I curse by the way right there? Yeah, you can keep – that one's fine, but uh, probably not any more than that. <laughs> All right, no more. I'm not a big person, but I was very upset. And um, and um, Paul, and Paul wrote a great book, right. but it's also very wonky. Like, it's very – it's for the USML diehard. And I was not writing a book where that was just for USML fans. So uh, my book was first. Yeah, yeah, there is a ton of color and anecdotes, and it's it's almost like a collection of short st- stories in a lot of ways, uh, as as I took it. And uh, mm-hmm. you, it seems like you, you talked to three hundred plus people. I think the number that I saw was three hundred forty. Is that right? No, four thirty. Okay, four hundred thirty. I got my. I was trying. Don't uh, understand. Dyslex- I was Come dyslexic on. there. Sorry about that. So you <laughs> talked to four hundred thirty people for this book. One of which I think was Chuck Foreman. Who is a, a local sports hero here? Did you yeah. talk to him? Okay, so I'm going to give I you did. a quiz. I'm going to I'm going to quiz you on your own book. Tell us about Chuck Foreman's brief mention in your book. Well, so Chuck Foreman, um, he hadn't played in the NFL since I believe 1980 with the Vikings. Right. And like actually, actually, the, he, he did he did actually play for the Patriots in, in 81, I think. Okay, 81. Go ahead. And like a lot of NFL players, he um, he heard about this new football league. And I think the thinking was, ah, new league. I can milk a few, you know, about a year or two, get some money. It'll be easy because I played the NFL and these guys, who the hell are these guys? So he signs with the LA Express, and he's in practice on one of these early days, and all the players are like, whoa, Chuck Foreman, Chuck Foreman. And he takes a pitch in one of these drills, and there's a linebacker, I don't remember his last name, out of San Diego State, who just smacked the crap out of him. Like, hit him, Chuck Foreman went down. They run the same play next, next series. Same exact thing, and Chuck Foreman was never seen again. He never played a regular season the rest of our game. That's yeah, that's exactly to you know the story that appears in your book. And the linebacker's name was Jerome Franey, and you call him a nondescript yeah. linebacker, but you you did get it right, San Diego State. Um, so yeah, so anyway, I did write the book. Yes, exactly. So you wrote a lot about a lot of teams, a lot of personnel people, a lot of front office types and players. You talked to all of these people. How in the hell did you keep it all straight? Because I'm telling you, when I was reading it, I was like, I'm losing track of who's who and what person is with what team. So I'm just curious, as a journalist, like how, as a you know, and as a writer, how you kept all that straight yourself while you were writing. Yeah, I actually think I think in a way that's one flaw that I didn't address, which is uh, I could have had a, maybe a glossary in the back or something, <laughs> yeah, right? I don't know, team rosters or something, but it was just it would have taken up so many pages. Right. Um, I'm very uh, I'm very into printing everything out, which isn't so great because I'm also I consider myself environmentally from a human being. I do print every interview out, every photo out, every clip out. You know, I, I put everything in. I just said photos. I put everything in photos. Yep. I try to organize it chronologically and by team. So I have a system that it's one of those things like if you saw it, I was sitting on my office floor, you'd be like, I don't, I don't know what the heck this guy is doing. But I do have a system that helps me keep sort of things in order. Gotcha. It's not easy. It's not sexy, but it works for me. Was this one more challenging? You've written, you know, uh, incredible books about um... – you know Walter Payton and Brett Favre, and you've written about teams like the, 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 the Lakers and the Lakers, the the, the uh, Showtime Lakers. You're writing about an entire league here. Like, how different was it for you to broaden that scope and write about an entire league as opposed to a team or just an individual? It's hard actually because um, you know all the books have a sort of basic outline, which is a, a chronological outline. Yeah. Other books I've written so far, and you know Walter Payton, this is an example, is a very easy outline. Uh, birth. Youth, right. football, post-football, or death. Brett Favre, the same thing without the death. 
You have an 86 match, a chronology of a season. So you have a beginning and you have an end. This league, you have a beginning and you have an end, but you have stuff going on in Denver at the same time. You have stuff going on in Oakland and you have stuff in San Antonio at the same time. So it's a straight line with a million different sort of right. side routes and branches and going left and going right. And, and it's, it was very, very challenging. And when I first wrote the book, I thought, this sucks. This isn't good. This is way too wayward. Uh, and my wife, who reads everything I write, she's like, no, I, think, I actually think you're good on this one. I think you, you kept the direction with, you know, you kept it moving in the right direction while just taking all these sort of rest stops in different areas. So uh, I guess I think of it like a road. It, you, can it, take, you can take the long way, you can take right. the short way, and the book tends to take the long way. Jeff, is your wife your toughest editor, would you say? She's a writer herself. Ah, good question. Yeah, she's a pain in the ass. I mean, she's like, uh, she's, a, she's a big fan of pointing out every word, words that I use repeatedly, like um, ensuing. I think all writers, this sounds pretentious, I don't mean that. I think all writers have used words that they tend to overuse just because they're yes. go-to words. Mine is ensuing. So she was circling and suing a million times. Hence, I use hence a fair amount. She would circle hence. And just <laughs> to write in the margins, don't need to see this again. You know, like stuff like that. So she is uh, she's unforgiving because she knows I can't just fire her. Right. Well, let, let me uh, quickly, I want to read an excerpt real quick that summarizes a lot of what was going on in this league. It's, it's uh, Chapter 9, Wild Fields. Um, and it goes, entering its second season, the USFL was strange. That sounds like a blanket statement, and indeed, it is a blanket statement. But of all the adjectives one could use to describe an entity that swapped a franchise for a franchise, expanded by six after one year, paid a college quarterback $40 million, ran a fixed draft, and featured crazy power-hungry New Yorker and a crazy power-hungry Californian as owners, strange works quite well. So I have to ask you, after reading that, did you realize when you got into this what you were actually getting into? Well, not really. Not, not to the degree. Right. You always know. The thing is, I grew up. One of the bar, one of the books I read that I really love, and it's it's such a good book, is Loose Balls by Terry Pluto, which is about the old American Basketball Association. Right. And the ABA and the U.S. have a lot of similarities. Absolutely. Uh, paying for stars, they they got Dr. J and George Grove in the U.S. and I got Steve Young and Jim Kelly among others. Um. And those stories of upstart leagues tend to have a lot of uh, zaniness. Uh, that's not a word I use often, but a lot of zaniness. Because you're traveling cheap, you're, you're, you're employing a lot of dead-end guys, right. guys whose careers in the bigger leagues, you know, faded. Uh, there's oftentimes a lot of drugs, especially in the 80s. There's a lot of cocaine going around. Usually hookers are involved. You know there's going to be stuff, but you don't know how much. And right. this is, I mean, again, Story after story after story after story. It was nonstop a fave the weird. That's what I was going to say. Like, there are just so many hilarious, like, outlandish tidbits. What is your favorite? Is there one that sticks out in your mind? I mean, there's so many. I'm not just saying that. Like, You're right. Someone said the guy, oh, last night, last night a friend of mine called. This guy, Mike Moody, a great guy, writer, and he read the book. And he's like, I can't believe the Chuck Clanton story. And I was like, oh, yeah, the Chuck Clanton story. I never even tell that story. And there was a guy in the Birmingham Stallions. He was the best player. He was a safety. He had 16 interceptions one year. Right. And um, Chuck Lynn, he was dating a woman then, and she wanted him. She was out of the club, and she called him to bring him food. And he brought her Burger King. And she was pissed off that he brought Burger King. Right. And the next day, he, he brought, she brought a, uh, like a kitchen knife to his apartment and stabbed him in the hand. And the, the knife literally went through his hand. 
And instead of going to what any normal human being would do, go to the hospital, he drove out to the team facility and have the team doctor look at it. Right. He's only driving with a knife sticking out of his hand. He still he still and, has um, the knife in his hand. Hey, no co-pays with the team doctor, Jay. Right. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. And you know, like, I mean, a small one, but a great one, is the San Antonio Gunslinger is putting a guy on the disabled list because he slams his penis in a trunk. Yep. I just think... You know your whole life, and you're never going to hear about that happen. <laughs> well, there are a couple of uh, uh, regional connections to us. I mentioned the Chuck, the Chuck Foreman thing. Chuck Foreman went to high school at Frederick High School, which is where we are. Um, and he's like the most famous athlete to come out of Frederick. Um, but otherwise, there, uh, there are appearances, many appearances in your book by, about uh, George Allen, um, who was obviously a former Redskins coach. And what, Did he go on to coach Chicago, the Blitz? Is that who it was? Yeah, of course it was. Okay, so how would you characterize his style and time in the USFL? Because I didn't see as the portrait that you painted uh, of George Allen as very flattering in some ways. No, it definitely was not. He was insane. He um, he was all about winning no matter what. He had to win. A perfect example, the first game in USFL history is the Washington Central was hosting the Chicago Blitz. George Allen, coach of the Blitz, sends a couple of his staffers in USFL windbreakers <laughs> to blitz practices with video cameras right. and have them take the practices, and then report back. They And they fooled the federals into thinking what it was. And um, and uh, they have these, you know, they're watching every play, so they know everything that's coming. And then they go out and they kill the federals. Right. It's like unbelievable. Unbelievable. Hey, Jeff, how did you do the bulk of your research for this book? I mean, were you were you old school? Were you in a library just scrolling through microfilm? Or is most of this stuff available on the Internet now? Just where did, Where did you find all this information? Uh, two main areas. I bought all the USFL media guides on eBay. I, uh, well, three areas. I bought all the media guides. Newspapers.com is this amazing resource. It costs like 100 bucks a year. It's all these old newspapers. And then the Sports Illustrated Library had a really amazing USFL compile. So I did that too. Yeah, I did a lot. I did a lot of highlighting of your book. I haven't done this since college, man. So uh, you should be, you should be <laughs> proud of me. Um, so, but I, you know, one of the things I highlighted was I think um, there was a fight on a plane amongst teammates. It was a commercial flight, and mm-hmm. I can't remember what the circumstances were. But there, in there, in the telling of this of this fight, was a quote from woman, some woman who was sitting in seat fifty four or whatever it was. And I'm like, oh my yeah. god, like this is an incredible example of like the kind of digging you did for for this book. Well, I always tell my like uh, when I talk to young journalists or my students when I teach, yeah, it's not just a soda. Um, it's a diet Pepsi. It's not just a diet Pepsi. It's Absolutely. Half empty. It's not just half empty. It's kind of flat. So I found that clip. I knew about the fight, and I did a bunch of research. I found a bunch of articles, and it said her name and what she was in and what happened. So <laughs> when you get that information, you have to use it. You I, know? I, that's, that's the way to do it, man. It paints a very vivid picture. All right, quick break here on Just Another Sports Podcast. We're back in a second here with Jeff Perlman. All right, back here on Just Another Sports Podcast. Uh, very uh, pleased to have on uh, Jeff Perlman, best-selling author, or as uh, some some might call him, just a guy in a coffee shop trying to get some sk- schlub who dresses milk. poorly. Exactly, uh, some disorganized schlub in a coffee shop just trying to get a get some skim milk. So, all right, uh, did you did you have something, John? Yeah, I just I, I talked earlier a little bit about George Allen and Chuck Foreman. I wanted to mention one other like sort of regional tie to us is, and that is the the team that became the Baltimore Stars. I wanted to ask you about them and like how in the world is it possible that a team could be called the Baltimore Stars, be headquartered in Philadelphia, and play home games in College Park, Maryland? Essentially, like every game they played was a road game. Like how odd was that setup? 
Yeah, very. It's just typical USFL nut jobbery. Yeah. Um, basically, the team played its first two years in Philly. Then the league announcer was moving to fall. Then the team got kicked out of Veteran Stadium, where their headquarters were. They moved to the campus of the University of Pennsylvania in an abandoned ROTC facility. Uh, they were literally going over plays and everything, um, like on the floor, because they didn't have desks to begin with. They played out of they, – they changed their name to Baltimore – but they couldn't get – they weren't allowed – Edward Bennett Williams, the right. owner of the uh, Baltimore Orioles, would not let them use the stadium. So they ended up playing in College Park on the University of Maryland's football stadium. But as you noted, the players then never went to Baltimore. Jim Moore, the head coach, would go once a week to do a press conference with the, uh, with the coach, with the uh, media in Baltimore. He took a train, But right? they weren't a Baltimore team. Right. So they never played in Baltimore, never. Yeah, I, I – um... I want to get into. We're going to get into Trump here eventually, but uh, the, the Stars were one of the best teams in the whole league. I mean, they went to the f- championship game twice out of three years, right? No, three times. Three. They, they went all twice. three years. They went three times. Correct. And yep. you know, that they were a really good team, and they had to deal with all of this uh, kooky stuff with the, where they where they were working and where they were playing. Um, but I wanted to ask you, uh, in terms of how talented they were, how many of these teams do you think could have competed in the NFL that were in that league? Um, in the early 80s, mid 80s, I think two. I yeah. think the Stars could have. I think the Stars could have been a seven and nine, maybe 500 team. And I think the Michigan Panthers that won the first championship with Bobby Abair and Anthony Carter, uh, similarly, seven to nine, eight and eight. Um, the big problem you had was depth. Right. It's just a thing. You know, you, uh, you had a ton of. The Philadelphia Stars are a perfect example. They had an NFL-caliber quarterback, this guy Chuck Lucina, who was second in the Heisman voting. Calvin Bryant, their halfback, was, was a star. Their offensive line, they had Bart Oates, they had Irv Eatman. And they had a lot of good – William Fuller was one of the past. So they had a lot of guys who went on to great NFL careers. You know, their wide receivers were Scott Fitzke and Tom Donovan. Their mm-hmm. tight end was Ken Dunnick. Like, they had a lot of guys who would not have been in the NFL. So the depth issue was a big problem. But I think the Stars were, the stars were really, really good. And they had a lot of really good players, and they were very well coached. So I, th- I think they would have hung in the NFL. And people who cover the Michigan Panthers and the Detroit Lions back then swear the Panthers were a better team. Right, right. So. Hey, hey, Jeff, you interviewed uh, 430 people for this book, as, as you say. How, how accessible was everyone? Did you have a hard time tracking people down? And was, was there someone that you didn't talk to that you really wanted to? Well, I wanted Trump, uh, and I didn't get I knew I would. I mean, I was working on it while he was running for president. And uh, I didn't get Herschel Walker, which was mildly disappointing because I didn't interview him before. And he was pretty good, but he didn't return calls oh, wow. for this, uh, emails, texts, blah blah blah. So, you know, it is what it is. Nobody owes me a conversation. How did you track all these people down? Were you were you were you just getting phone numbers as you as you talk to people? Or I mean, that, that, 430 people—that's that's a lot of people to, to to try and hunt yeah. down. Yeah, the first thing I did was I. Uh, one of the first things I did was I bought all the USFL media guides on eBay. So, um, how much, how much did that cost? How much did that cost? Probably paid 150 bucks for all of them. Okay. You know, it's not bad for the research. You know, you're doing research, it costs money. You're getting paid to do the book. Yeah. Um, and then I just like, I would make a word file for every single guy and every single media guy. But then one by one, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Nexus, Lexus, uh, a lot of them wound up being coaches or you would call the you call the college where they played and, you know, call whatever, Arkansas Little Rock, and say, do you have any idea where you had a wide receiver in 1978 named so-and-so? 
any idea. So just a massive manhunt, one after the other after the other. I only had a year to do this book because I, the money wasn't very good, so I couldn't really afford to spend uh, as much time as I usually do. So he's just double-timing everything. Hey, Jeff, one of the central figures, maybe the central figure in the demise of the USFL, is our own fearless leader, the current president of the United States. And it seems that a lot of the mistake, a lot of the kinds of misstatements and falsehoods, some might call them lies, from Donald Trump that ultimately led to the, led the USL, USFL down the wrong path, are now showing up with alarming fre- frequency in, in his presidency. Mexico is going to pay for the wall. I the largest inauguration crowd. No collusion. I, I mean, I suppose the jury is still out on that last one. But a, a lot of people see Donald Trump for who he is, Jeff. Even back then, I think. Pete Rozelle, then the commissioner of the NFL, didn't want him in the league. Uh, as you report, the USFL franchise owner in Tampa Bay, I think, saw him as a, as a con man. He wanted nothing to do with him either. And, and, and some people even today, Jeff, uh, they, they, don't see, um, they don't see Trump for who he is. They, they buy the shtick that he s- sells. So what is it about Trump? I mean, why can't some people see him for who he really is? Because they're dumb. <laughs> I'm actually being serious. I don't understand. Yeah. I don't get it by now. It's crazy. I, this is one of my favorite questions. And you're supposed to tiptoe around these questions when you're like, you know, whatever, being very cautious. And I am not really a tiptoer. It's insane. And I've actually said to people, people be like, oh, another liberal writing a book bashing Trump. And I always say the same thing. You try working on a book about the USFL and come away thinking this guy should be president. Like, I dare you. I dare Sean Hannity. Take a year. Research USML. Tell me you still think this guy should be president. It is. The parallels are crazy. I've never. I felt like screaming this. I'd be, wor- I'd be working on it and telling my wife. I'd be like. <laughs> I mean, I'll just give you the best example. There's so many examples. But I'll give you one that's like perfect. Is he signs Doug Flutie to be the quarterback for the New Jersey Generals out of Boston College. He gives him the biggest contract in pro football history. Six years, $8.3 million, three years guaranteed. It's a crazy amount of money for a five foot nine quarterback who probably would have been a fourth or fifth round pick in the NFL. But whatever. He signs him and he tells his partners with the generals, Don't worry, the other teams are gonna pay for his contract. Not only that, then he writes a letter to the other teams and he says, I have done us all great service and I expect all of you to pay for Doug's contract. And I was on MSNBC recently and the host is like, That sounds like the Mexico wall. And I said, like dumbfounded it is the mexico wall it is 100 percent the mexico wall. it's the exact same nonsense it's the same playbook and all the owners basically gave him a big fu we're not paying i mean his biggest rival you mentioned was john bassett tampa bay bandits owner john bassett saw donald trump for what he was he called him a con man to the new york times but i can't believe so many of us are falling for this con man um john bassett in 1984 is diagnosed with brain cancer and as soon as that happens donald trump walks all over him, stomps on top of him, acts as if, he, as if he doesn't exist anymore. You know, all his dreams are coming. He just he just wipes him out. It's crazy. And um, it was John McCain, 30 years before John McCain. The biggest thorn in his side, brain cancer, walks all over him. Over and over, the promises he made that the I have a $90 million TV deal waiting for us in the fall from the, from the networks. I guarantee you, I already have it worked out. That was not a fabrication. That was a complete and total lie. He told them that when he hired Roy Cohn to be the attorney for the league, Roy Cohn was famous for representing Joseph McCarthy uh, during the communist hearings. He said, when I hire Roy Cohn, don't worry, the U.S. of L is going to settle immediately. 
Why? It's factually untrue. Not true. There's just one exaggeration and fabrication, bluster, BS, bullying after another. And if you if you know the USFL, you know the story of Donald Trump 30 years before he became president. So I have to ask, Jeff, could you have altered the course of U.S. political history? If, if, if this book was out two to three years ago, would, would Donald Trump be the president? Yeah, he would. Because <laughs> who the hell am I? He still would. Yeah, um, and, and probably, yeah, probably people have written that he's a con man before, too. So you, you weren't necessarily yeah. shedding light on this, but, but it's just another great yeah. example of, of, of... People don't want to listen. You know, Mark Twain, one of my favorite quotes, and I learned it somewhere recently, is uh, it's easier to fool people than to convince them they've been fooled. I just think, there you go. That kind of says it all here. So in a nutshell, without giving away too much of your book, um, how did— I don't mind giving <laughs> I was going to say, how, I mean, it's an old story, but how did Donald Trump ruin the USFL? I mean, he basically sold all the other owners on this idea that there were this bountiful of riches awaiting them in the fall. Right. And, I mean, on the one hand, he's not, he doesn't get blame alone because they didn't have to listen to him. They didn't have right. to follow him. Uh, but they did. Um, but he led them down this path and he, he, he ended up basically becoming commissioner without having the title of commissioner. He got the first commissioner, Chet Simmons fired for the second commissioner who was some lackey named Harry Usher, not a bad guy, but no, no, would not stand up to Trump for the life of him. Um, and he led this push to sue the NFL all because he wanted an NFL team. And he thought ultimately what would happen is the USFL would win the lawsuit and the USFL would be forced to merge. And, of course, they're going to take a New York team owned by Donald Trump because he's the best. They did this lawsuit. It was a total disaster. Donald Trump was a star witness. He was a total disaster. They won a dollar, and the league died. It was all his plan. Again, you can't be blamed. If you vote for Trump, just as an example, well, you made that decision. And if the owners who voted to move to fall, they made those decisions. Donald Trump did not hold a gun to their head. But was he the leader of the, of the idiot brigade? He was. I like that you you used his phrase too, like total disaster. He, Trump was a total disaster when it, when it came to the USFL. Yeah, if you, just grim. So you did. You know what it is? I freaking love that league, and it infuriates me. One infuriated me when the thirty for thirty came out, and he called it small potatoes. Right. Because I know now, especially I know a lot of those guys, and a lot of those guys, it was not small potatoes. Then it was a dream come true. There's a defensive back, Pete Rafer from Eastern Michigan, Division Two school at the time. He played for the Gunslingers. He ended up being all USFL. He was living his absolute dream. And as soon as the league folded, um, he was picking up cigarette butts in a, in a parking lot trying to get work. That's the story of freaking small potatoes right there. It wasn't small potatoes, these guys. So you mentioned, unfortunately, you weren't able to get Trump uh, for an interview. But if you had him one-on-one and he had, and he had been injected with, with, with some truth serum, what's like the one question you would ask him about this? I mean, I'd want to know how much... I guess I'd really want to know, like, I would want him to explain step by step how he was so willing to take this thing apart. You know, like, I don't know anybody. The only other person I've met sort of like him is Barry Bonds. I always felt when I was covering baseball, Barry Bonds was someone who sought to make your life more difficult. And it did not bother him. It didn't, you know, like, I always teach my kids. Don't make someone's life more difficult. Clean up after yourself if you're in a restaurant. When you stay in a hotel, you, you, know, you make sure all the towels are on the bed when, when they come to clean and you throw out the soap in the shower. Like, don't make someone's life more difficult. I don't understand how someone was so willing to throw away so many careers and so willing to kind of drag this league under for his own gain. 
it's a remarkable way of thinking and going about life. I would love for him to explain that thinking to me. So, uh, obviously, they decided they were going to go to fall. Um, what year was that, Jeff? Was it 86 that they were supposed they, to? The lawsuit was in 86, and they were supposed to start in fall of 86. Okay, so obviously, it just it never happened. Um, the, the, the whole idea in, in this book is that they had the right idea. Like, they had a product that I mm-hmm. think was working. Um, now, yep. there were going to be some teams that probably weren't going to be able to hack it and make it work, but there were a majority of them that probably could. Uh, make it work. So I want you to finish this sentence. If the USFL had stayed in the spring, it would have eventually mer- a bunch of the teams would have eventually merged with the NFL. Probably in 1987 during the NFL player strike, right? You would have seen a mass defection of guys to the USFL. The USFL would have freaked out. I mean, the NFL would have freaked out. You had a team in Jacksonville before the Jaguars. You had a team in, team in Tennessee before the Titans. You had a team in Oakland after the Raiders left. A team in Baltimore after the Colts left and a team in Birmingham, Alabama that was drawing very, very well. And the great irony is I don't think Donald Trump's idea was crazy of having a team in New York City. I really don't. Right. I just think he went about it in a really stupid, self-destructive way. Hey, Jeff, uh, next year and the next year or two, uh, two, fo- new, two new football leagues are going to launch. Uh, the XFL is going gonna, is gonna to relaunch, and I think the AFL uh, will, 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 yep. will, will launch too. Um, will they succeed? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on those, uh, relaunching leagues? And did you like the, did you like the first go round of the XFL and why do you think it failed? Uh, I mean, the XFL failed cause it always felt like a gimmick, you know, it just felt like a gimmick. I like the Tommy Maddox rose from it. I thought he hated me. It was funny, but it never felt real. It felt cartoonish. And I don't think people really care about cartoonish football that much as much as Vince McMahon thought. Um, the merging of wrestling and football is not something I've heard many people say, you know, I really would love that. Um, I think it's going to be hard for these leagues. The, the, the problem that we have now that we didn't have in 1983, 84, 85 is there's such a preposterous oversaturation of football. You think about it when I was growing up, it was Monday night football and it was Sunday afternoon football. And that was it. Now it's always, it's fantasy. It's, uh, NFL network. I just don't know how much of a hunger there is for minor league football. Uh, I could be wrong. I think if it's going to work, they got to do a few things, which they are doing. They have to hire big-name coaches, Steve Spurrier, Rick Neuheisel. Those guys are good starts. They can't take on the NFL directly. And the thing I always say, the most important thing is, if you're the, if you're the quarterback of the Orlando Apollos, a name I don't understand, by the way, but if you're the quarterback of the Orlando Apollos and the, uh, the Dallas Cowboys come and sign you, the league has to celebrate that. They can't reject it. They can't fight the signing. You have to celebrate it and say, look, he was here playing for the Apollos yesterday, and tomorrow he'll be playing for the Cowboys. You're going to see the rising stars if you come out to our games. And you also have to keep prices in check. You can't have crazy prices. Yeah, the USFL, uh, sort of like the XFL, um, the NFL started borrowing stuff from the XFL, um, like, for, mm-hmm. for example. And, and the USFL had some incredible ideas. Like, I, I think uh, I think somebody in the book says that they were almost credited with the first combine, right? Um, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they had um, – I wish USFL – I mean, from a corny, hokey sort of standpoint, I wish USFL got more credit. Two-point conversion. Yeah. Coaches challenge. Wide receivers being allowed to wear numbers 1 through 19. That sounds dumb, but it's kind of cool. Um, you got four Hall of Famers who started their careers in the USFL. They had three Heisman Trophy winners signed in a row. The one I always say that players aren't aware of, but they should be, is um, salaries just exploded when the USFL came along because suddenly, for the first time, players had an option where to go. Sure. So all of a sudden, the NFL had to pay a lot more money. So whenever Le'Veon Bell winds up signing his deal with Pittsburgh or whoever, 
Um, he won't, and I'm not saying he needs to, but he should. He, it'd be nice if he thought about what these USFL guys sort of did and what the league did to boost up player salaries across football. It was also pretty funny that, I mean, Herschel Walker came out early, and that that just didn't happen. There was no... There was no possibility for these guys to, to to leave college early, and I think one of the one of the anecdotes that I thought was so striking was that Walker like apologized. He signed this huge mega deal with the Generals, yeah. and he was like, "I'm sorry." He's basically apologizing to all the Georgia fans, I suppose, which I find it was flabbergasting that he would apologize for being a human being, right? Oh, it's also funny. First of all, he's like 20 or 21 yeah. years old. See, poor the poor guy. Like, the the I think it was the state assembly in Georgia. All the members wore like black armbands in their sadness and sort of anger over Herschel Walker leaving. And I just love the image of this all white, probably all male governing body bemoaning a 20 year old kid from Wrightsville, Georgia, whose parents barely had enough money to afford plumbing, bemoaning a guy going to make his money instead of being used by the college system. It's one of the most grossly comical, but not funny images of the book. Hey, Jeff, what is the future of the NFL with the way it's being officiated currently and with all the player safety concerns? And would you like to see one of these leagues, such as the XFL or the AFL, would you like to see them rise up and challenge the NFL uh, someday in the future? Um, you know, I have a harder, like a lot of people, I have a harder and harder and harder and harder time with football. Um, I can't believe the players don't have guaranteed contracts. I think that's sinister. It's weird how baseball players, how Chris Davis of the Baltimore Orioles will get his $161 million or whatever it is. Don't get us started and, on Chris Davis. Yeah, sorry. But, you know, but at least, but that's fair. Like, he signed the deal. They signed him. He's trying his best. He just stinks. Yep. At least he's going to get his money. Meanwhile, NFL player, you know, you stink. They, they dump you and you're kicked to the curb. And it's such an injury-prone game. I just think the ownership, the, the owners have really, in my eyes, disgraced themselves with the whole kneeling issue and kowtowing to this lame president we have. Um, so I don't, I don't root actively against the NFL, but I'm not sitting here hoping for wonderful things for them. I think the world would do just fine without football if we actually reach that point one day. Yeah, I mean, how close are we to that day, Jeff? I mean, will the NFL be played like it is today, say, five to ten years from now? Oh, yeah. I think a hundred years from now is a different question, but five – yeah, it's still a freaking massive right. – people – I would say people are way too – we're so reactive to these things. Like the whole kneeling thing, is this the end of football? It's not the end of football. There's just more things to do. You know, like my kids do not watch TV ever. They don't watch TV. The TV in my house is only on when my wife is watching uh, Teen Mom. Like that's pretty much it. Or we watch Family Feud sometimes. And it's, it's not because they don't – they dislike football more than they used to because they have mobile devices. Um, it's because they, they want to play whatever, Fortnite or whatever game you think of. Like, this is how it works. So when people are saying, I can't believe football, the ratings, blah, blah, blah. It's not just because people are fed up with the game or because Colin Kaepernick decided to speak out. It's just circumstantial based on societal sort of evolution. How did you become a sports writer, Jeff? I mean, how did you start in this, in, in this career? Uh, I mean, I was the – I don't want to brag. But I was the sports editor of the Mailpack High School Chieftain. You probably read some of my work. You may have read my, uh, my pretty historic article about the Mailpack High boys cross-country team. Is it on newspapers.com? Did you read that, did you read that piece? I, I, I missed it, no. Oh, man, it was really good. Hey, we write, I, a, we um, write a lot about cross-country here, Jeff, so let's not poo-poo cross-country. Yeah. 
I love. I ran cross country at Delaware. I love cross country. I um, I always wanted to be a writer from the time I was a kid. My uh, when I was a kid growing up in Mayo Pack, I I absorbed sports biographies, um, sucked them down, and the librarian would actually. I think her name was Jerry, and she would call me whenever new sports books were in, and she would keep them on the side. So she would call my house and say, "Yeah, Bo Jackson's biographies in. I'm going to keep it on the side." And I would run down to the library, get it, run back. Um, and my dad worked in Stanford, Connecticut. And he would always come home with just a stack of sports books for me, and I would just gobble them up in bed. Um, and it really built a love for me. And when I went to college at Delaware, I wrote for the student newspaper for many years and uh, interned in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, making five bucks an hour, you know, started the National Tennessee, and then I got hired at Sports Illustrated in 1996, and it, it changed my life. Uh, Jeff, I understand you guaranteed your mother you would one day work for, for SI. I mean, what made you make that guarantee? Why, why did you make it? Yeah, it's, it sounds corny. I just kind of felt like I knew it. I remember being like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated one day. I'm telling my mom. And it wasn't a guess. It was a very declarative statement. And she said, my mom is the best, by the way. I tell the story. I need to clarify. She's fantastic and a great, great mom. But she said, you know, you need to be realistic. Have you ever, you know, why not be a lawyer or a doctor? It's a very Jewish New York mother thing to say. Um, I just freaking, I love sports and I loved SI and I love the written word. And I just felt it, you know, I just felt it. And uh, I think to my mom, the idea of being a writer, a professional journalist was not that different than being an actor or a singer. It'd be like me saying, I want to be the next Michael Jackson. Well, you have to be realistic. And when I got hired at Sports Illustrated, the first person I called was my mom. It's got to be weird for you. I mean, you teach class, uh, you teach college kids, um, and you were a kid that looked up to these writers and ate this stuff up. Um, now you're you're that guy to a lot of young writers. What is what's that feeling like for you? Yeah, it's super weird. That happens every now and then. Where someone, the worst is when someone says, "I grew," I've read, I had someone recently say, "I grew up reading you," <laughs> and I felt like saying, "Go to hell, man!" I'm not that old. It's it's. Uh, it's cool. I mean, it's, you actually realize it's kind of funny. Like when you come up, I remember being at SI, being surrounded by all these legendary writers and just not belonging, like not thinking yeah. I belonged. And then you become, I'm not saying I'm legendary, but then you have success in the field and people look at you a certain way. And you realize that the people you were looking at back then probably feel just like you do now, which is I still feel like I'm 24 and scrappy and trying to come up. I don't feel like I'm anything special. I don't think this career, I don't think writing books is any greater talent than waiting tables or filing law briefs. It's just a gig. It's a great gig, but it's not like I'm gifted or anything. So I don't know. It's all weird. It's super weird. The passing of time and the changing of your status and all that stuff. I've never fully understood it. Right. Hey, hey, Jeff, who's the greatest sports writer that ever lived? It would be awesome if I said me. If I was like Donald Trump who gave himself <laughs> an A+. Plus. Me. It's me. Um from my lifetime, I guess from my lifetime, I'd probably go Steve Russian or Gary Smith at SI when I was there. I'm g- Frank I'm DeFord. Gonna, yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I, my number one draft pick, I think, would be Frank DeFord. Steve, Ru- great. Steve Russian would be up there, too. Yeah, yeah. Steve, Steve's outstanding, too. You yeah. know what they're able to do is they're able to um, – you're able to be empathetic when you're – not in someone's age group, or you're writing, you're Frank DeFord and you're 55 and you're writing about a 22 year old and you're still 
able to find a way, the capacity to understand what they're going through. Well, he wrote uh, a, he wrote a story about it. he wrote a famous story about Anna Kornikova for God's sakes. He was probably in his sixties. They sent him to go cover this sex pot tennis player, and he wrote like one of the best pieces of journalism, sports journalism I've ever seen. You know what's so funny? I'm going to tell you a story about that. I was at SI when that came out. We do not remember it that way at SI. <laughs> I love DeFord. DeFord is a hero. I thought that story was creepy. It was a little well, yeah, yeah, over how beautiful Anna Kornikova was. <laughs> I'd be like, here I am at age 46. I may think Anna Kornikova, 22, is the most beautiful woman ever. It's probably not my place to write that right. in that way. So I don't know. I know what you're talking about. It's really funny. I can picture the cover of my head. Yes. She was wearing like a beige thing, and she's looking into the camera. Like, yeah. It was as close as SI came to minus the swimsuit issue of kind of selling sex. Yes. I never liked that cover. Well, why? Kind of funny. Why was Frank assigned that story? Why? Why? Was I think he, he wanted. He wanted to do it. I believe. Oh, he I think okay. it was he idea. wanted to do it. Okay. I don't know. Frank was a great guy. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know him that well. The guy's a. He was a great guy. It wasn't like he was creepy or anything like that. I don't. I don't know. And, and, and no, no one pulled him inside and said, "Frank, this might not look the best if if you were the one doing this story." Or uh, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I mean I who, who's going to tell Frank before at that point? If you yeah. wanted to write the story, they were going to let him write. Yeah, sure. Yeah, who's going to tell him no at that point? So, yeah. so it's uh, December of 1999, Jeff, and a, and and a story comes out of yours in Sports Illustrated. It's about Atlanta Braves relief pitcher John Rocker. And uh, during the course of your on-the-record interview with Rocker for the story, he said a few, shall we say, interesting things. Uh, he, he may have thrown a few uh, racial and homophobic slurs in there. Um, did you have any idea he was like that be- before you started in- interviewing him? And, and were you shocked at what you were hearing during that interview? I knew he was kind of a buffoon. And I knew he was a cartoon character. And I also knew he was from Macon, Georgia. Um, so... It wasn't shocking. It wasn't, yeah, it was actually shocking. I shouldn't even say that. It was shocking. It was crazy. It was the craziest experience of my life. I didn't see it coming. I saw it coming when I started driving around with him and he started complaining about Asian women and how they can't drive. And then we passed the person he was complaining about and it was a white guy. That's your first sort of inclination that this might be a different kind of day. I mean, how do you, how do you even no. react when he's, when he's making, do you just sit there quietly and just take notes? I mean, I don't even know how I would react. I would almost like have nervous well, laughter or something. Recorder. I had yeah. a tape recorder and a notepad. And you just kind of roll with it. You don't. You certainly don't egg it on. Right. But it wasn't my job as a journalist. I mean, it was a good early lesson for me. I was only 27. It was one of my biggest. It was my biggest story to that point in SI as far as the magnitude, I guess. And uh, you're the, the lesson is you're not there to debate anyone. I'm there to listen. And I'm there to write. And I'm there to tell your story. He thought we were two white guys driving around. Like he saw me as another white guy in the car. And Say what he wants because hey, it's a white guy in the car. I'm not that guy, um, but I wasn't going to tell him that. I wasn't going to start debating him. You just you just roll with it. And, and he knew he was on the record, right? I mean, there was no, there was no, pre, there was he no pre, pretense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, just what what did that? How did your life change after that story came out? I mean, it made it hard to be a baseball writer for about half a year where you'd walk into clubhouses and people would be like, there's the rocker guy, there's the rocker guy. People didn't want to talk to me. I got chewed out by Will Clark in front of the entire team in Baltimore. Stuff like that made it tough. Um, I would say on the flip side, it probably helped me get my first book deal. You know, because I was suddenly you had a name a little bit more. I was Tom Verducci's backup baseball writer at Sports Illustrated. That was really who I was at that point. And I got that story. 
and it kind of just changed the trajectory a little bit. I mean, I was still at SI and I was still a writer, so it's not like I was I was in the middle of nowhere. But it definitely changed the sort of path of my career a little bit and gave probably gave me a little oomph that I lacked. What was your first book deal? Uh, the bad guys won. Okay, right. Yeah. Is that it, how, how do you see the books that you? I, I mean, is this your favorite? Is this the best book you've written because it's the most recent? Like, how do you look at your your works? And I think I've I've seen you saying that on online that you think this is your best book. Do you really think it's your best one? I do, but not because it's the most recent. I always um, like Walter Payton was a couple of books ago, and I yeah. consider that the best book I ever wrote. Um, you know, I I hate most of what I write. At of course, first, you at do. Least. Yeah, you know, you learn to like it when other people like it. It's so warped. But I hate most of what I write. I'm not. I don't walk away from my stuff happy and thinking it's the greatest stuff ever. You learn to like it over time if other people like it because we're all thin-skinned and narcissistic to some degree. Um, I feel like the USFL book just—it was just the book I really wanted to write, and the stories are so ridiculously good. It's really like—it's not like the writing in this book is any better than you know 900 other writers in America. Yeah. The thing that makes it work is just the reporting and the stories, and it's really me calling people and letting them tell their stories and then kind of unspooling them. So it's not like this is not Frank DeFord writing 10,000 words on whoever and people saying, wow, what a master class in writing. I feel like this is more, this guy just busted his ass to do the book of his dreams and he really put effort into it and now here's this really entertaining book, I hope. Is this where you ultimately saw your career going, Jeff? I mean, even when you were writing for SI and, and, and writing for the student newspaper, I mean, did, did you see yourself as a book writer one day? Did I think I was going to be a book writer? Yes. No. Uh, I never thought of it until I was at Sports Illustrated. And uh, John Wertheim, one of my colleagues, wrote a book about uh, women's tennis called Venus Envy. And uh, the regrettable title is he would, he would agree. <laughs> and... Uh, an agent approached me and said, have you thought about writing books? And I was like, well, I don't know. And she actually, her name was Susan Reed. And she, she came up with the idea for the 86 Mets. It was never in my head. And that really changed my life. And I love writing books. I love writing books more than I love anything else as far as career wise. I love the digging. I love the deep dive. I love being left alone for two years and being able to just report. Um, I love everything about it. It's one of the great sort of serendipitous discoveries of my life is writing books. Yeah, I mean that's we we look at these works and we're just like, man, how great it would it be to sink our teeth into something for that long and really right. um, be able to work work through the story and tell it the way we want to. Um, so we're we're very envious of you. <laughs> well, I got problems too. I know. Be, you know, it's still. <laughs> I always I just said to someone before, which is really true. Like, it's really true. Like this is the thing that's interesting that you learn as you get older. Like, people would be like, I I, I have writer friends. I have one friend in particular. I just want your life, Jeff. I want your life. <laughs> and it's easy to feel that way when you see someone promoting a book and the book is selling well and there are reviews and you have your, your month of being in the spotlight a little bit. But it's a lot of repetition. It's a lot of digging through old clips. It's a lot of calling, getting rejected, calling, getting rejected, calling, getting rejected. It's a lot of tough time management. Sure. It's a lot of isolation. It's a lot of boredom. Um, it's like that line, my favorite movie line probably ever is a league of their own when Gina Davis is about to quit. And she says, it just got too hard. And Tom Hanks says, it's supposed to be hard. If it were easy, everybody would do it. Yeah. Like this stuff, it beats me down. The rewards are super high, but the lows, I mean, you can talk to my wife, the lows are, can, can hammer you down too. Are you at your happiest when you're sitting at your computer and writing? 
I'm at my happiest when I'm in a coffee shop and I have a day where I'm just like researching. Okay. I love that. And I love writing when you're on a roll, yeah. but writing can be, can beat you down too. Oh yeah. I love the research. I love finding stuff. That's really fun for me. Little nuggets of awesomeness. Hey, hey Jeff, how have you dealt with just getting through the rejection? I mean, you, you have to keep going, but I mean, how hard is that? And, and just how have you developed the way to keep pushing forward when you, when, when you don't get the answer you want to hear? Uh, I mean, I don't take it personally anymore, so that's helpful. And I mean, I've had a lot of like, this isn't like a woe is me story, but I've had a lot of books that were optioned for movies, just as an example, which is great, but they've never been made. And I always get optimistic, or I used to always get optimistic and they never get made. I think one of the things I do is I no longer assume something's going to happen. It's kind of my dad and me. My dad's always like, well, you never know. It might not happen. And I used to be like, dad, why are you so negative? But now I realize in a way you're better off not counting on something. So whenever I see writers put out these messages, guess what? My book was just option. It's going to be a movie. I'm always like, yeah, it might be a movie, but I wouldn't count on it. Right. And that's kind of, it's not the most positive way of thinking sometimes, but it kind of keeps me sane. Hey, hey Jeff, you also host a podcast and I love the name of your podcast. It's two writers slinging Yang. Uh, explain the title of that podcast. Well, slinging Yang means, uh, you know, talking trash. So, uh, I just thought it was funny. I used to, I used to, uh, some friends and I used to always say sling and yang, sling and yang. No one knows what it means or not that many people know what it means, which makes it even more fun. And it's just me and another writer talking about writing. It's been really fun. It's like a labor of love. I don't get any money for it. My sponsor gives me free t-shirts every now and then. That's it. Uh, it's just for kicks, but it's been really fun. Yeah. You've had some great guests. I mean, uh, I, I think Steve uh, Ruchin's uh, been on, uh, uh, Gary Smith, I, I think uh, you did a recent one with. I mean, just just some yep. of the best writers on on earth uh, have have talked to you on this podcast. Who has been your favorite guest so far, or, or what's the best story you've heard so far on your podcast? Uh, I don't know story, but I mean, getting Gary Smith. Gary Smith's only has a flip phone. He like he's <laughs> off the grid in North Carolina. And I sent him an email. I I don't even know if I ever met Gary. Maybe in an SI group meeting, but yeah, that he's was retired. It. No, and I just sent Is him an email. He's like, okay. And I was like, great. And that was it. And he was wonderful. He was super insightful. Most of us, the thing is, most of us don't get to talk about writing that much. Not that many people want to talk writing with you. Writers love talking writing with other writers, I found. So this, to me, is just an opportunity once a week to talk writing with someone else who wants to talk writing. So that's really cool. And, uh, well, did you have something? No, I was just going to say, we, we've, <laughs> we've really enjoyed uh, talking writing with you. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Was there something, is there a piece of advice? That you, you teach college classes, and is there a piece mm-hmm. of advice that you give these kids just in general that um, you think they need, to, they need to have, especially for the ones that you think are really going in the direction of getting into journalism? Well, the one thing I always think, um, and I say this every class at some point, is like, there's a difference between wanting it and wanting it. You know, like, I'll be like, how many of you guys want to be writers? And maybe, whatever, if I have 15 students, maybe nine hands will go up. And I'll be like, okay, you want it. But do you want it? Like, are you willing to move to South Dakota for your first job? Are you willing to cover cops in Anchorage for your first job? Are you, you know, because if you want it, it's a harder industry than ever. It doesn't mean you can't do it, but it means you have to be willing to do the crap that other people aren't going to do. It means making the thousandth call. It means waiting outside someone's house. It means knocking on doors that you might not want to knock on. It means moving to South Dakota and you know nobody there and taking a job for 22000 a year. Do you want it or do you want it? And that's what I always say. You have to want it. You can't just 
like the idea of it. Or I want to be a journalist, but I really want to stay close to home. Or I want to be a journalist, but I only want to cover baseball. It doesn't work that way. So I always say, you got to want it. If your kids came to you, Jeff, and, and said, hey, Dad, I want to be a journalist one day, well, what, what advice would you give them? What, what would you tell them? I'd be thrilled. And I would say just what I said. I said, all right, yeah. you got to bring it. And you got to be creative. And you got to be open minded. The other thing is, I've never known a good journalist who's a racist or a homophobe or someone who isn't curious about other people or isn't willing to sort of, if you're a white guy from rural America, willing to, to go into the projects and talk to someone you aren't familiar with, or if you're an African American guy from the projects, willing to go to rural America, Oklahoma, and talk to one. You know, like, I'm willing to talk to anyone. I would cover a KK rally, to, KKK rally tomorrow. I'd go, you have to be willing and open minded and excited about seeing what's out there. That's the beauty of this job. You have a, you actually have an invisible card that says, talk to me. And people actually talk to you and tell you their secrets and tell you their thoughts and their heartbreak and their joy. That's a freaking great, great uh, power, but it doesn't come easily. All right. Well, the book is Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and the Crazier Demise of the USFL. How, how do people get their hands on this book that want it, Jeff? You send me a check for $10,000 and I send you a book. Only ten thousand dollars. I got, that's, that's I got one for free, man. This was a great deal for oh, me. Then. Man. Or you can, or you can just go to Amazon or Barnes and Noble or wherever books are sold. You can also get it there. Okay. And we should point out your podcast. You, you, you don't just talk about sports. You, you branch out into other subject, other oh, yeah. writing subjects, and other subjects besides sports, right? Of course, I try to do everything. I just like writing. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, hey, thanks a million for your time. Thanks, uh, Jeff. And, and and best of luck uh, with the book. We we hope it's a big success. So. All right. Thank you guys so much. All right. I appreciate thanks. it. Thanks. All right, our thanks again to uh, Jeff Perlman uh, for joining us this week. We will uh, see you next week. Hopefully Colin's back uh, next week, Josh. But uh, we'll be back next week with just another sports podcast.